Welcome to Cloudlandia. Mr. Sullivan. Uh, Mr. Jackson. Well, well. Chicago well, it is, huh? Yeah, we're yeah, we're here. It's further ahead, leaf wise and flower wise than Toronto. And uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's nice. You know, I think when you live in northern climates you develop amnesia. Like you, do, you, you just forget. You just well, you lived there for long enough to know, but you you put through four or five really cold, dreary months, and uh-huh. then you get a, a week of warm weather, and you forget about the five months. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Isn't that funny? And it always comes in April, and when there's still enough time for there to be another snowstorm. Yeah, we have everybody's out in their shorts and t-shirts one day, and then snow the next week. We had 80 on Friday in Toronto, and it's going down to 30 tonight, and with snow and hail and sleet. And you see, that's always that's always it. Yeah, it's the somebody's turned on. You know, if you cut off if you cut off a rattlesnake's head. Even if the head will still bite you. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I know the tail keeps rattling. Yeah. Yeah. So how was your have week it. of workshops? Well, I didn't have a way, week of workshops. I mean, oh, I, I had, you no, I, I don't have weeks of workshops anymore with the others doing the 10 times. Oh, that's right. Now all you're doing is... is pr- Plus the two optional programs, the uh-huh. uh, and I still do the connection calls with mm-hmm. the end times. So I had one yeah. of those, and I had a free zone call, and they were great. Yeah, they're really good. And uh, what else did we do? Oh, we submitted twenty-two patents this week. To Keegan came in with his team, and oh, we wow. went through the first twenty-two patents, and they go. Uh, I think they had a little bit of. <clears throat> adjustment to make on Thursday and Friday, but they they go in on uh, Monday to to the Patent Bureau in Washington. So, and we identified twenty eight more. So we'll have another batch going in probably in the, sometime in the summer. Oh, that's so great! Yeah, I was uh, chatting with Keegan last week or two weeks ago. I had referred a couple of people over so there we go that's exciting yeah i mentioned last week i was down in i was down in del rey beach and i had lunch with mark lachance and he's a fascinating guy he's got a lot of really cool stuff they're doing with tiktok but he's including including plan b and plan c because i think tiktok's time and and certainly in the united states is you know it's ticking their talk is ticking i'll tell you that's exactly right but isn't (laughs) that interesting that's always going to be the case you know but the good news is that everybody else now including youtube facebook instagram has fashioned themselves into a tiktok clone you know in such a way that you cannot tell which stream you're you're scrolling through experience is identical to the instagram and youtube shorts and 
Facebook Reels experience. So there, even if TikTok goes away, that will just, all that content will just kind of, you know, find its way to the exit, find its way to the outlet. Well, the thing is that all the TikTok stuff was already on Facebook and it was on yeah. Instagram already because yeah. they, I don't know who did what to who, but apparently Stephen Poulter was telling me that he would, you know, he's really capitalized for the listeners. This is a fertility doctor, IVF doctor yeah. in Long Island. And he was noticing there was a lot of misinformation on TikTok, mm-hmm. you know, regarding getting pregnant. And so he started talking about, you know, in 45 seconds to a minute, just, you know, this is the correct information. And this is the, you know, and he said, I've been doing this for 30 years. And believe me, there's a lot of myths and a lot of, you know, weird thoughts about how it happens and how it doesn't happen. And so he started putting them out and he's got like, it's in the millions. I don't know the exact number of views. Yeah. Well, he's got over a hundred million views, but the number, number of people who are, you know, faithful followers is really high. And, you know, and the phone is ringing off the hook. People are knocking on the door and everything, but, he was saying that some of the people he thought were mistaken because they'd say, well, I saw your thing on Facebook. And he says, well, oh, right. we're doing it on TikTok, but People they were automatically going, on to, they were going yeah. on to Facebook, too. So, yeah, right. I don't know. I don't know who the, you know, the person who's doing what ends up there, but it's, it's an interesting thing. And, uh, yeah, so... Yeah, but, you know, I lived through the first Cold War with Soviet Union, and I tell you, this one is accelerating faster than the one did with the Russians back in the 40s. And, and yeah, we're, you know, yeah. <clears throat> America really likes having enemies. It focuses, America is kind of an AD country, and, <laughs> and you, you need something to hyper-focus on, and nothing does it like an enemy you can really dislike. Yeah, that, it's so amazing. I mean, how much of a... I, I've just really been visualizing our crowd thinking in terms of the way that the internet and all of our attention goes. It's almost like those swallows that, you know, the birds that all move as a big unit. One moves and everybody moves in that same direction. And it's been really interesting to see it move it on mass from you know in from you know from bitcoin to nfts to crypto to now chat gpt is everything mm-hmm. and it's just like mm-hmm. everybody all the swallows go over there and we're all you know gathered around the the chat gpt thing right now and it's just amazing to watch it watch it move you know Collective. Yeah, and I was on a podcast call with Mike Koenix on Friday, and he was showing me a neat little GPT app that's called Agent GPT. I don't know if you've seen that. 
have not. And it's it's really nice because you can just more or less brainstorm. Yeah. Uh, you know, they just have one box, and you have you just more or less brainstorm. Yeah. Uh, you know, and another thing, I want this, and another thing, I want this, and another thing, I want this, and you know, and you know, you can just sort of meander, and then it kind of sorts that all. Out. It sorts your meandering out, and then it puts it all together. So it's it's a really fascinating. It's a really fascinating thing to watch how it does. It's a faithful servant. You know, it yeah. goes out there, and and there's an evil one called Chaos GPT. Have you seen that one? <laughs> of course, there is. Yeah, and it said, "I want to, I want you to think through all the ways I can destroy this person." Wow. What kind of advice did it give, or what does it? Lethal, lethal advice. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's crazy. Well, it sh- it just shows you. I mean, there's there's a kind of a naive quality to a lot of people who think that you know technology is an unallayed, you know, it's an unallayed good in the world, you know, and that the constant between good people and evil people in the world stays constant. It was this way five thousand years ago, and it's the same. The, you know, the proportion of people who are, you know, good people and meaning well for other people and bad people who are meaning bad things for other people. Have you read anything about the ratio? No, you know, and I don't think there's any way of surveying it. Okay. Mm. But yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. But I suspect there's a top 10% who are angelic and about bottom 10% who are satanic. So, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. So, you know, but, you know, they just do bad things for the enjoyment of doing bad things right, uh, to right. people, you know. And, and uh, so, you know, they're having problems with teenage mental illness. You know, because of social media, and it's pretty pretty clear right now. It's mostly social media, and it's mostly among teenage girls. You know, it's uh, that the proportion of mental illness, reported mental illness, in other words, where they're getting therapy or they're, you know, they're talking out loud about their feelings about it is about. It's lower among boys, you know, maybe 15% girls are about 30%. So it's twice as much about girls. And it's proportional to the amount of time that they're spending on social media. Yeah, that is something like, you know, you think about how much, you know, like being constantly, instantly connected to everybody everywhere and not having any mystery or any wondering no no internal you know brings everybody's kind of it's easier to express internal things that you maybe wouldn't say out loud easy to troll and say them on face like a very different impulse control on yeah you know well in the gang thinking that you would never say to someone and just that instant connectivity and having that 
you know, you can imagine as a team navigating through that with the emotions and hormones and everything. It makes it even more amplified. Well, and their you, know? Bra- you know, the teenage brain is not a fully formed adult brain. It, they now think it's around age 24 when you got all the parts and they're all they're all working together and and so if you're 15 or 16 you're lacking a lot in judgment and discrimination and you know standards and just a sense of who you are actually as an individual i had a real uh, an interesting experience this week i recorded a podcast with a young man, 23 years old from Croatia, who, you know, I just realized in the thing I've been doing, you know, we were talking about, you know, a book I had done. The first online marketing thing I did was the Stop Your Divorce book. And so he knew all about that. And he was, you know, we were talking about that, but I realized that I did that before he was even born. Mm -hmm. I was 23 years old. He's a pretty accomplished marketer online in Croatia who's grown up his entire life along with the internet. I mean, he was basically Mm -hmm. born, he was born in 1999. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so you look at that and his entire life, he didn't know a world pre YouTube really, Mm -hmm. you know, but he was, YouTube came online when he was six. And it's so it's been Facebook right behind. So his whole world hasn't been shaped by well, being connected you know, to the, the globe. Yeah. You know? The interesting thing about that is that all the information about what existed before the internet is available. It's on, it's available on the internet. You know, and it's lack of curiosity that I think goes with. I got really addicted to the Britannica Encyclopedia when I was about mm-hmm. 10 years old. And I created mm-hmm. my own educational system because I wasn't I wasn't feeling a real depth to the education I was getting. I mean, mm-hmm. the center of it was religion because I was Catholic. So I grew up with mm-hmm. that. And then you had all the topics. You had math and you had, you know, you had English and you had history and geography and civics mm-hmm. and all that. And I didn't find that very satisfying going to school. I mean, you know, I mean, the system's not designed for me. So why should it, you know, why should it cater to my particular needs. So I just went to the really big volume, the multi-volume of the Encyclopedia Britannica and both for the library. My first part of my life, I lived in one town and then another town, you know, from around 11 to 18. And I would just go in there and I would do it. I would like hypertext in the sense that I would just take one volume yeah, uh, and I'd put it on the table. I'd open it up with my eyes closed, and I would put my finger down, and wherever it landed, that article in the encyclopedia—that's what I would read, and I'd make notes, and then they would have cross references at the bottom. Also, see such and, and such, and then I would out. pick one. Of, I'd pick one of those, and I just, you know, I'd be just—I was basically surfing 
the Encyclopedia Britannica from going in no logical form, just, oh, that would be an interesting, I'll go to that one and everything else. And But they had a test when I was going through high school. It was called the Iowa General Knowledge Test. Uh-huh. And, you know, and uh, they I don't know if they stopped giving it because of me, but uh, the average student in my class would have like a 20 out of 100, you know, and my I would come in at 80, 85. Wow. And it was just because I was really interested in you know, my teacher would say something, and I, mm-hmm. that would give me a cue to go look it up in the Encyclopedia Britannica. And then, you know, the, the next day I knew more than she did, you know. And it's like kids with uh, YouTube now. Right. Uh, St- Stephen Palter's youngest son, Sam, well, he told his father, he said, I figured it out. He said, I figured it out. And he, his father said, what have you figured out? And he says, life. <laughs> and he says, oh, how'd you do that? And he says, why, well, in class, the teacher says something. And then that evening, I find five YouTubes on the topic she was talking about, or he, uh-huh. male or female. And he says, and tomorrow I know more than he or she does. I figured oh. out life. I figured uh-huh. out life. That's amazing. Yeah. I bet yeah, a lot I'm- of kids are figuring out life. But if kids don't know anything about what happened before they were born or, you know, it's on them because the information is all there about what happened before mm-hmm. they were born. You know, mm-hmm. so they're just not curious. Yeah, that's and now they've got, you know, graduate students, you know, assistants right there in chat GPT as their, you know, yeah. their homework Sherpa. Better than any teacher, you know, yeah, better than absolutely. Yeah, and they've got, uh, you know, and they've got Khan Academy. Khan Academy is really great. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. So, you know, I mean, if you if you don't know something, it's just because it's nobody's fault that you don't know it. It's all the information that's available. Yeah. And that's, uh, so there's the thing, right? Like the big wondering now is like, what is, I observed in this conversation with the young man from Croatia, you know, there's, we, it's come around now where there was a model for kind of the first, you know, I would say 15 years here of the internet that the migration was from the U.S. where all the innovation and marketing, you know, education things or applications of the internet were happening and if you were in croatia or you know you could just observe what's happening in the united states bring it back to croatia as they were you know trailing the development of their online world and you're you've got a whole virgin audience that now needs to hear all the things that you just learned from Mm -hmm. the united states and now it's getting now we're at the point where everybody everywhere in the world knows all of the stuff and it's back to now they all want to come and conquer America. That's the that's the thing. They see now the thing is to get out of their you know, closed environment of being in their local country. And it's funny because I've done 
my Breakthrough Blueprint events in London and Amsterdam and have seen, you know, the European leaders of a lot of these countries that have, you know, taken, they've become kind of the, the figurehead kind of thing early on of bringing all of this stuff into their into their country and they've become known for it in yeah. in their closed market. And they almost always want to now take that to America. They want to conquer the American market or the, you know. Yeah. I heard one, somebody was making a comment about the afterlife, you know, if there's life mm-hmm. after death and they said, well, you know, the, the goal shouldn't be either heaven or hell. The goal should be, having the courier service between the two of them. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's where the money's made. You make money by crossing borders. You know, all money yeah, is made exactly. by, by, by moving something across a border. And, uh, you know, there's physical borders, but there's also, you know, knowledge borders and psychological borders and emotional borders, entertainment borders. And yeah, and so my sense is, you know, I was on the call with Mike, Mike Koenig. Yeah, he was talking about the. He says, you know, it's really having a huge impact on my brain. He says I'm noticing I'm just thinking differently as a result of interacting with the technology. And I said, well, you know, there's precedent for this because when the printing press was introduced. It wasn't that there weren't printing presses before, it's that there wasn't movable type before. Gutenberg's great innovation wasn't the printing press. There had been presses, you know, they were <clears throat> developed out of the wine pressing industry, you know, pressing. And they just, you know, so there was presses before. Well, Gutenberg, you know, knew about presses. But it was the movable type that you could just have. He, and he was a goldsmith by trade, so he was used mm-hmm. to he was used to melding metal and putting it into forms and getting, you know, jewelry and <clears throat> gold, you know, gold objects by pouring them into a mold. And they he so he just did that with the alphabet and he poured in you know, metal and then you know it would harden and then he that would be the that would be the letter and they mm-hmm. do a lot of them and then you could do a whole sheet with if you had a hundred of each letter then you could just pick them i had a brother who was a brother-in-law who when he first married my sister was a typesetter and he was still using the technique that gutenberg came up with in you know in 14 this was 1455 so this was the yeah. 1950s 1950s, so it was mm-hmm. 500, 500 years later. He was still doing it the way that Gutenberg had introduced. That was a very lasting innovation. Wow. And 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 then within about 30 years after Gutenberg, there were 30,000 movable type presses across Northern Europe, not Southern Europe, but Europe. And and. One of the things they discovered, there's a guy named Steve Johnson, who's just a really good thinker about technology. And he was talking about that one of the immediate impacts of Gutenberg's movable type is that there was just a prolifer- proliferation now of new things to read. 
people, even educated people, discovered that they were they were they didn't have good near vision. They had good lawn vision. They didn't have near vision, and so the entire eyeglass industry went through the roof as as a tag on for the printing press. Oh wow! And one one of the things that happened is that people were no longer being read to in large groups. They were now taking the individual printed material and they're taking it home. And this was, you know, in their study or wherever they, you know, just comfortably yeah. could be by themselves. They just would interact. And, and one of the impacts, I've put a whole bunch of things together with that is, so 1455 and then about a century and a half later, you have Shakespeare. And he's the first known dramatist, the first known playwright, <clears throat> who has his characters talking to themselves on stage. And mm-hmm. so Hamlet's the most famous, but you have Othello, you have, you know, you have Macbeth, you have Lady Macbeth, <clears throat> you have Richard III, out of his characters. And they, they'll just great. be on, right. yeah, they, they'll just be talking to themselves. And Freud, end of the 19th century, said that he believes that the our notion of who we are as modern people really comes from that crossover when people started having conversations with themselves like that, that they had that before that they probably didn't have that feeling of talking to themselves, but they were so used to it because they were interacting with the author of the book. So right. if you move that to chat GPT, you're interacting with this, it isn't it's it's machine learning you're interacting with a a machine learner okay? yeah and and therefore you're being now influenced by a, your addiction to a certain kind of interaction that you're having with the machine and this is i mean as we get more and more comfortable chatting with the and learning the protocols, I guess, learning the prompts, it becomes much more. It's I've noticed even in the little time that I've spent how responsive, you know, it is to like real conversation in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Except it doesn't have really a point of view. I mean, you may interpret that it's got a point of view, but it's just got a, a point of view that's allowed by the knowledge base that it's using. I was, it was very, read an article, I think it was in the New York Times about a doctor who had been experimenting with diagnosis through chat GPT. Like he was seeing how long it would take him to to feed in he'd have to take like six six layers of descriptions to get a, a diagnosis of, of something and it, it, i forget what the percentage he had you know he said of how accurate it was but i think it was about 60 percent or so of the time it could accurately something but there were also you know times where it was completely would kill them <laughs> if it was 
if you took that, but they're all sort of spit out with such confidence that it's not like maybe this could be or whatever. It's really said with confidence. And I think that goes along with a lot of things that I've heard about the, you know, spewing accurate stuff with confidence. Yeah. And you call it out. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we shouldn't be shocked by that because we have uh-huh. <laughs> we have plenty of human examples of that. Well, exactly. I mean, that's what I say. It's made up of all. <laughs> I mean, isn't that what? Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Isn't that what marketing is spewing out yeah. stuff uh, with confidence? <laughs> 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 I think that's called marketing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, I've never, I've never encountered an even-handed marketer yet. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, I want to tell you the weaknesses of my product compared to other products. <laughs> well, <laughs> I love it. Seth, Seth Godin wrote a book called "All Marketers Are Liars," and it was a. That's it. They're all just telling. Story, including Seth Godin. Including Seth Godin. Godin. <laughs> <laughs> I got a picture in the, you know, included. Not saying anything bad about him, but he comes across as an excellent marketer. So, yeah. I mean, if if his proposition or his thesis is true, then he has to be included in his own definition. Yeah, that's the truth. Yeah, yeah. And, but he, I sent him a picture that I took. Well, I was flying on United Airlines, and I was in business class, and they handed out the, this is before they, they would stop serving nuts. They handed out the little foil package of what was labeled Supreme Nut Mix. And when I opened it up, I found that it was mostly pretzels with some nuts (laughs) in it. And I laid out a little, I had a, a, I took a piece of paper and I put an X and Y axis on it. And I stacked up, there were, there were pretzels, there were almonds, there were pistachios, and there was, you know, one cashew, I guess. And it was, so I stacked it up and it was like, you know, the first thing was this stack of all of these straight, pretzels that was the majority of what was it yeah followed by well you could have yeah you could have thrown in cheerios you could have thrown in (laughs) cornflakes but that wasn't (laughs) what was on it but that was so funny that i put it in and it was you know it was the ratio of pretzels to nuts and seth commented that you know why tell a lie what's the point of telling a lie that's going to be discovered in the next five seconds you know, yeah. on the package, it says Supreme Nut Mix. But when you open it up, it's the Supreme Pretzel Mix, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of nature is about fooling. Things. You know, there's a lot of foolery mm. in nature, you know. Yeah. Animals have all sorts of tricks of mm. making their quarry, you know, what they're trying to hunt down, believe that something else is happening. And, you know, it's very, uh, it's a very interesting thing. There's a Greek, I think Aristotle has it in one of his books on logic. And he's Theban said, all Thebans are liars. 
and watch what your brain does with that. Yeah, that's interesting, right? Are you lying about that? that? Well, is yeah. Is that true? And, yeah. Is that true? And he says, this is where, and then that was, Roger, have you ever seen a YouTube of Roger Penrose? I don't believe so. Nobel, I think Nobel Prize winner, but in, I think in the area of, you know, in the area of machine logic, I think, I mean, he's close to 90 now, if he's still alive. And uh, but he was saying that this is the problem uh, with the notion that there can be a universal intelligence, you know, and this is dropped very frequently in technological circles. There will be a general intelligence that's smarter than all humans. And this is a fiction. The notion of a general intelligence, uh, there is no such thing as a general intelligence. You know, you have to cross a line and you're in the realm of God if you talk about universal, you know, universal intelligence. And but he he says that plants are intelligent in a way that we don't understand. Animals are intelligent in a way. And then humans, just because we have limited bandwidth as individuals, we can only be intelligent about certain things, and then we guess and bet on other people's intelligence that we we don't actually have that intelligence, but we bet on, you know, we guess that person is someone that you can trust, and we bet that, you know, it'll be prove out that what this person is saying is true. But in terms of what we actually know, we're, I saw on Joe Rogan, I forget who was on with him that someone was talking about these coral that, you know, the, all these different types of coral that spawn at exactly the same time on exactly the same day in, in, you know, a sequence, you know, a pattern, but they all, no matter where they are, all of the coral of this type will all spawn at exactly the same time even if they're in different parts of the world type of thing. And These are coral, you're talking about coral reefs, right? Coral reefs, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how yeah, that I mean, there, uh, there's and just a lot thing of, about uh, there, I mean, there, I <laughs> cut out an article for, <clears throat> we have in Toronto, I have a quarterly discussion group of about uh-huh. a dozen People, most of them coach, most of them are coach clients. And and there's two parts to the discussion. One is a book is recommended, so everybody reads the book for the quarter. And then people come across articles, and then they submit the articles. And we, if we have room, we, you know, we'll have about 40 articles and these articles are formatted. They're formatted into eight and a half by 11 with common type and everything else and who submitted the article. And, but I submitted an it was an article and it was about a bird called a gotwit, G-O-T-W-I-T, gotwit. And <clears throat> the particular species that they were looking at comes from a place like Fiji, uh, mm-hmm. one of the islands, you know, South Pacific mm-hmm. islands. And each gatwit makes a, 
year-long voyage as long as they're living. And the voyage flying, they the first part of the voyage is to China. Okay, so from so thousands of miles. <clears throat> and then they lose about 60% of their body weight in flight just because they're not eating at all. And they're, wow. they're flying constantly. They never rest. They never take a, you know, they don't stop in the Philippines. You know, they, oh. they, they, they fly directly to the spot in China. And then they store up on food and, you know, they spend two or three months getting their body weight back and have enough fat. And then the next flight is from China to Alaska. And it's based on the season that it's now, you know, not severely cold in China. Right. And they do the same thing, the same thing. And they go back. Then the third part of their year is to fly back to Fiji. Okay. So it's about four months, four months, four months. Uh, and, and, and they always land at exactly the same spot in China, in Alaska, and back when they get back to Fiji. They hit it right on the nose. And there's an intelligence there that we can't comprehend. Yeah. That's kind of thing. That, you know, that interconnectedness is like, uh, you know, it's a pretty wild thing. Yeah. The crabs, I guess, they took out of the ocean and put them in a tank. And at the time, at the, you know, their bodies were sort of tuned into the tidal, you know, the tide. And when it was low tide, they would be scurrying, you know, to stay against the grain. And then when it was high tide time, they'd be scurrying the other way just because yeah. they're so programmed even to though do they, that. Even they were in a tank. Yeah, even though they were in a still tank. And that's... Yeah. That kind yeah. of stuff, you see that all the time, that there was an actual, there was a movie about about fungi that was how this whole under under the forest floor kind of thing, all this interrelation of fungi kind of centrally managing the forest. Yeah. Yeah, and actually they found that what looks like separate patches of fungi are actually the same fungus okay mm-hmm. and the largest one that they've discovered i think is in oregon that's in south southeast oregon and it's like a mile across it's the fungi is and but it's just one organism because genetically they can take a sample from here and another sample from a mile away and it's the same it's like aspen trees you'll see a hundred aspen trees it's all the same tree the root structure is exactly the same for all the, they share the hundred aspen trees, share a hundred. Now, what's the intelligence there that, first of all, even developed? And then it, you know, <clears throat> you know, it's, uh, so the whole point is there is not going to be any general intelligence. Like there's uh, computers are going to be smarter than you know, uh, smarter than humans, the whole notion of the singularity. That's uh, Ray. It's not Ray Kurzweil. It's John Van Newman. He, John Van Newman was a 
mathematician and an early thinker about computing, and this is the 1950s. And he simply said that based on, if it's based on calculation, in other words, faster and faster calculation, it's very clear that the speed of calculating is already way beyond what humans could do. You know, that, you know, that, but that would be true about the thermostat in my house. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, I mean, it's judging, you know, and it's pre-programmed, you know, and it knows when to cool the temperature down, knows when to cool, you know. Do you have a nest? Do you have the nest? No, no. Okay. uh, Yeah. I resist resist the temptation to become totally incapable. Oh, right, right. You know. But you have that, you just. You train it over a few days, and then it realizes, okay, yeah, it's, it's got to cool it down. Yeah, yeah it's, you can pattern in times. You know, yeah. you can pattern yeah. in times, and, and it does what it's supposed to do. And uh, you know, but uh, if I was responsible for that, I wouldn't get it right. You know, I mean, right? I'd be, exactly. <laughs> I'd be talking to, I'd be uh, the house is getting colder, but I'm talking to Dean Jackson. You know, I mean, What's that's where my here? mind goes. I just go for the most interesting thing to engage with, you know. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I think you well, have I, that problem too. I think you have that issue too. I think so too. Absolutely. I got my. I've been reading this week my copy of Ten Times is Easier Than Two Times by Dan Sullivan with Dr. Benjamin Hardy. How world-class entrepreneurs achieve more by doing less. Yes. Fascinating. Yeah. This is uh it's really great. I'm, 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 I think his opening section on Michael Michael Angelo is I really do. unique. I yeah, think it's absolutely. really unique, you know. Yeah, and he had spent six weeks in Italy, I think, last summer and he came back and he wrote this up and I said, This is I've never seen anything where an artist, you know, a famous artist or a famous creator, where he was analyzed in this way of jumping from 10 times to 10 times opportunity and capability, you know. Yeah. And I thought that was, yeah. Yeah, and we're, it's it's really got a buzz. So we don't release it officially until the 8th of May, 8th or 9th, I'm not sure. It's one of the days. And but Hay House, the publisher, already had to go to a second forty thousand print about two weeks ago. Okay, so wow. the, the pre-orders are yeah pre yeah yeah. So our goal is for two hundred thousand sales in the first one hundred days, because nice. it will be double the gap in the gain. The gap in the gain was a hundred after a hundred days, and the uh-huh. Um, and the the who not how was fifty fifty thousand after a hundred days. So we just see if we can push the model there. And so yeah, there's a lot of well, that's an open audience of people who are waiting for the next one. So that's a good that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they sell each other. You know, it's mm-hmm. like uh, you really see this with fiction authors that if you come across. Yeah a fiction author you like, <clears throat> and you're just discovering them at their 10th book, 
you immediately yeah. go back and read the first nine. If you like the one that you're introduced to them, you know, the one that introduces you and you say, gee, this yeah. is really great. I'm working on a guy named Gerald Seymour, who is a novelist, a British novelist, and it's mostly the MI6, MI5. You know, these are the UK's kind of equivalent of the CIA and the FBI. The MI5 is the internal intelligence and the MI6 is the external foreign intelligence. And But I didn't discover this guy until book 35. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I, you know, I mean, it's like finding gold, you know, I mean, if you right. like the sort of things. And I just said, geez, this guy's a great writer. And uh, so I went back to his very first one, and it was a blockbuster. I mean, uh, he came out of the, you know, out of the gates using a horse oh. race, and he came out just like a rocket, you know. And oh, it was awesome. the number one book. And But he had been an investigative reporter, foreign affairs investigative reporter. And, you know, he's been in a lot of tense situations and, but, but the switch over to fiction, you know, is, is a lot of nonfiction writers couldn't do that, you know, but he, he did. And so the 1978 was his first book. So 22 and 22 is 23. So 45 years now he's been Six movies have been made of his books and everything. But it, what's neat about it is that you discover this, and he's been out there for 45 years, but I just didn't come across it. Yeah. That's amazing. And that, do you jump around like that, or do you feel compelled now to read, like, in sequence all the way through? Oh, no, I don't even read I don't even read them in sequence. I oh. I read the most recent one, and I read the first one, and then I just go, and they're all listed. And I said, yeah. that sounds like an interesting one. I'll read that. But then I've got downloads coming from other authors, so I pre-order, like, yeah. Jack Reacher, gotcha. the Jack Reacher, and there's yeah. I have about five or six that they just pop up, and when they come in, I read them. And then I have nonfiction stuff. And yeah, yeah, I'm a bit like you. Actually, I'm a great deal like you in the sense that I don't put myself into a straitjacket about, you know, right now I'm going to finish all these before I move on. Just that's just right. That might last two books, and then I'd say, oh no, this now this feels boring, right? Right, right, exactly. That's why I wondered. It didn't strike me that you would be that regimented in. Feeling the need to complete it, you know, but it's nice to know you got that well. But Amazon does a good job with that on my Kindle because they'll sense kind of what I like and then they'll recommend some other books. They'll say, if you like this one, you'll like, you'll probably like these. And they're, they have good sense, their algorithms are good. I'm always amazed, like you were mentioning the Michelangelo section here in the book. And I, you know, when you look back at the whole career, Michelangelo, right, we're seeing it from the completed, you know, the complete body of all of his, of all of his work. And 
what is always amazing to me when you look back at it and kind of isolate in on the sequential, the chronology of it, that you know, it was two years that he was working on David. And it was, I don't know whether it's five or ten years or somebody was working on the Sistine Chapel. You think about when you think about it as one thing, but all encompassing for that for a two year period, you know? Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, you know, there were fewer distractions back then. That's what I mean. Yeah. Uh I mean, he wasn't checking his, he wasn't checking his cell phone a lot. Right. Yeah, that's exactly, that is exactly it, you know, about working on that one thing for such a long period of time. Yeah. Then it was the collective of all of it, you know, the way that body of work could have, and they all built on each other. That was what was really the sequential stuff he learned in doing Hercules, you know, came over and went into the, Pieta and then went into the David. I mean, studying the, uh, and realized how he studied anatomy by breaking. Stealing bodies. Stealing Stealing bodies to be able to. Stealing cadavers. Yeah, that's. Cadavers. I mean, this is where grave, grave robbing came from. They weren't. I mean, some of the grave robbers were after what the person was buried with, but uh, some of the grave robbers were there just to get the corpse, you know, yeah. and deliver it to, you know, medical clinics and artists, yeah. you know. Yeah. And that's pretty amazing just to see, to understand, you know, how something works so that you can see what's actually causing the shape that you see. I was really, I found that really I found that really fascinating. So kudos to for seeing that connection. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, uh, but he was kind of a, you know he was kind of like a one man show. But I was in Rome with Babs, and we went around and saw some of the fountains, and almost all the big the Rome Roman fountains are colossal. Sculptures, mm-hmm. you know, and they've got uh, a lot of moving, uh, you know, a lot of, I mean, uh, they're not just one thing, uh, fountains, right. there are sculptures, and there's scenes, and yeah. everything like that. And the main man was Bernini. He's the, you know, sort of the same era as Michelangelo. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you just can't comprehend how one person created this much work. But then I started doing studying and he had a company of 10,000 craftsmen. I did uh, not know that. Wow. Yeah. And he had like, when it came to sculptures of human beings, he had thumb people, finger people, ear people, nose people, you know. But what he did, he's like the glass blower who's very famous. Yeah, Uh, right. Yeah, today, Chihuly, uh, oh, right. Dale Chihuly, yeah. And his big, one of his most famous works is the ceiling of the Bellagio in mm-hmm. Las Vegas, you know, which is 
huge. I mean, it's just huge. But he had an accident where he lost sight of one eye. And you can't be a glass blower. He was, you know, he was an artisan. He, but you can't be a glass blower if you don't have both eyes because you're, you just can't handle the deaf perception that's required as a glass blower. Okay, so he had to become a visualizer for other glass blowers, and that's when he really became famous was when he switched over. And we were in London, and we went to uh, track trying to think what the park was. It was a park. It was across the river. It was about halfway between downtown London and the airport, and it was a park there. But they had 40 of his, you know, they were quite large. They were quite large. Oh, Richard, wow. Yeah, but it was, the, most of them were in the outdoors. He had a couple, some of them that were on inside of buildings. But it was a grand estate of some sort, you know, that had been taken right, over right, by right. the National Trust and everything else. But just the extraordinary interestingness and variety of the different work that he does. Yeah. But so I think Michelangelo is even more unique because he was basically a, you know, a one on one guy operation. I mean, I'm sure he had people who prepared his paints or prepare, you know, sharpened his tools or yeah, everything, you know, cleaned up messes and things like that, you know. But yeah, and I mean, he's very famous for the Sistine Chapel, but most of his mm-hmm. career isn't painting mm-hmm. at all. You know, it's it's sculpture. Yeah, yeah. That's something. That difference between doing. I don't know what what test was that up was compared to Edison. You know, I know Edison had a factory model with lots of people, technicians, and engineers, and scientists. Yeah, yeah. No, Edison's really the model for the modern tech, you know, the tech, company, you know, the modern tech company, he put it all together. He put marketing together, investment, you know, everything and, you know, testing, experimenting, innovating. And he, they had a goal. They had to produce four patents a month. I think that was his lab. Menlo Park, New Jersey yeah. is where the yeah. lab is. Yeah, he grew up, but he was born in Milan, Ohio, where I, you know, spent my childhood. So I'm very familiar with Edison, you know. And, but he has over a thousand patents, but it's just that every patent that came out of his Menlo Park labs, he got the patent for it. That was one of the deals. You could work for him and he paid well, but all the invention belonged to him. Yeah. That's amazing. Something what to learn in that model. Yeah. Yeah. Who not how? <laughs> Who not how? Exactly. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Stay in the game. <laughs> ten, <laughs> ten, 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 ten times is easier than two times. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. a great trilogy now you've got. It, it's uh, a good trilogy. It's a really good trilogy. Yeah. Yeah, and the big one. What's the next main? We haven't. We want to capitalize, so we're taking some time out just to capitalize on the first three. 
<clears throat> and uh, so there won't be one for this year. So we'll we'll see. And and but uh, you know our sales team, our marketing team loves these books. So yeah. And uh, anyway, I got to jump. And uh, anyway, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Have a great week, and I'll be back uh, next week. You'll be doing the uh, you'll be doing the end of the month free zone by yeah, of course soon. yeah. I zoom. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. I wouldn't miss it. Okay. Bye. Thanks, Dan. Bye.